The Fast and the Curious is part of the Acast Creators Network. You enjoy it now. Hello, welcome back to The Fast and the Curious with me, Christian Hugill. Now, I was set to, in the words of Jason Derulo, as he once famously sung, be riding solo this week, but breaking his self-imposed FIA shutdown, and we are going to have to work out what the punishment is for that. We'll have to consult the Fast and Curious FIA-endorsed handbook. Welcome back from his holiday early, Mr. Greg James. Gregory, hello. Hello, Christian. I couldn't resist the lure of this podcast. And also, full disclosure, when producer Jimmy said that he'd arranged this today, I was really cross that I couldn't make it because I've been ferrying friends backwards and forwards I've been ha- I am on holiday but just sort of doing things like we're in the middle of nowhere so I'm taking friends to stations and picking up people and I was like I don't think I'm going to be back in time and I'm just about back in time and I'm so pleased because I wanted to chat to you and the two people that you've got on the podcast today so I'm very excited okay so let's talk about who we haven't got on the podcast Betty Glover because she has got a last-minute call-up to... I mean, the woman's on the telly more than Alison Hammond nowadays. She's had a last-minute call-up <laughs> to do the cricket on BBC Two because someone has to mention cricket on this podcast. It's the rules. Yep. Normally, it's Greg. Today, it's Betty. So, no Betty this week. But we do have, as regular listeners will know, when one of us can't make it, a reserve driver, a listener reserve driver. As I was expecting to be on my own, I bought back the person who I had last time I was on my own. So, welcome back, Nick, off of Washington. Nick, Welcome back to the podcast. Christian, amazing to be here. So excited to join everyone today. Well, Nick, as I say, it was just you and me when we were last on with Alex Albon, I believe. So Nick, meet Greg. Greg, meet Nick. Yeah, Greg, good to finally meet you. Nick, are you annoyed that you're uh, not here just as the other co-host, that there's now a third idiot uh, involved? I'm sorry to have... uh, (laughs) to have taken your moment away potentially not at all annoyed because as i've listened to the podcast i know greg is team principal not a driver so no competition to worry about still put in the- <laughs> yeah yeah no no and and it's just very nice to see you know my, my drivers in action <laughs> will you get the chance to impress the team principal directly uh and we of course we do have f1 drivers co-host the podcast regularly when they're not getting topless on Instagram on holiday, uh, as has been the case with Alex Albon and George Russell in particular. They're the primary culprits this time around, I notice. Alex Albon, by the way, last time he was on the pod with you and me, Nick, going, oh, no, I don't really do that sort of thing. Utter rubbish. Look forward to giving him some (laughs) stick when he's back on. Uh, But we do have another seasoned racing driver to join us on the podcast. We'll tell you exactly why we've got him on, because he's got a very particular set of skills, uh, which we're going to quiz him (laughs) on in a bit. But ladies and gentlemen, welcome Alex Brundle making his Fast and Curious debut. Alex, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very niche, aren't I? Uh, It's uh, it's, it's quite clear. Thank you. It's uh, it's great to be on. Great to see you guys. You're far from niche because, I mean, Alex's motor racing CV is frankly ridiculous. He's raced everything from carts to sports cars to GP3 to Le Mans. He was the 2016 European Le Mans Series world champion, by the way. So, you know, quite the motorsport CV. But Alex, you are a sensational motorsport commentator and presenter. And where you tend to uh, apply your trade in that field is the wonderful world of Formula 2, am I right? Yeah, it certainly is. Feeder Series has been a big part of it. Uh, from the commentary perspective for a few years now and uh, there's nothing I enjoy better than uh, than a barnstorming Formula 2 race it's 
it's by to all intents and purposes better than the Formula One action for for so much of uh, for so much of the season, isn't it? Oh, the racing is unbelievable. We'll get to that in a minute. That we we will come to that. But I'm so glad, Greg, you're on for this because as soon as Jimmy sent me this in the week, I was like, oh my god, if Greg was on this week's podcast, we'd do most of the podcast on it. So we might do most of the podcast on it. It can't have escaped most of our listeners' attention that your surname is Brundle, because you are, in fact, the son of a certain Martin Brundle, also famous for his motor racing ability and commentating ability as well. You're very much keeping it in the family. (laughs) Alex, are you aware, because I wasn't, and this is one of my favourite things ever, that your dad is referenced in Stormzy's latest single? Is he really? I was not aware of that at all. (laughs) That means that I'm going to have to explain who Stormzy is to my dad, which is going to be very difficult. <laughs> no, he's met Stormzy. Yeah, he knows Stormzy. I know I know for a fact that he's met him, and that's probably where this has come about, because, you know, Stormzy knows who the cultural icons are. <laughs> that's why he raps about them. So your dad doesn't know about this? No, 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 that's, we're, we're not. Is it, in a, it's in a, is it in a positive context? Of course it is. Or is it a negative context? Or is it neutral? I can tell you the the exact context. It's called Angel in Marble. Uh, I'm not going to rap it for copyright reasons, even though I am an excellent rapper. Uh, But it does feature the line, and I quote, I grew up in the jungle on the grid with Martin Brundle. (laughs) Excellent, Alex. Your immediate reaction, please. That's a, that's a new that's a new wildest <laughs> dreams moment for MB. Surely, what do you think his reaction's going to be? I think it'll be a. What does he mean by that? But, but I, um, no, I think it'll be very. I think it'll be very flattered. I, I don't get the DL very much on uh, on who he's met and and whether he enjoyed it or not because it's normally just a a blur of shouting at the cameraman and adrenaline i'm not even sure he really remembers <laughs> who he's spoken to and who he hasn't uh, sorry I've, I've actually got the i've got the line i'm just gonna we're gonna risk legal proceedings i'm gonna play you the line well, you're the team okay. principal if you want to risk it you risk it yeah I, i'm i'm playing fast and loose with the fia and also now a major record label. Here we go. up in the jungle when the grid with Martin How incredible is that? Don't send him. Nobody send him that. I want to be the first person to play that thing. Can I be the first person, please? Yes. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, because he doesn't know at all about that. So I can't wait to send him that one later on. And Nick, don't you have a Martin Bundle classic line on a T-shirt? I do. I'm a huge fan of Martin's, like, uh, like, really out there metaphors when he's doing commentary on F1 um, and some of those lines just stick in my head like glue. Uh, And so I was getting ready to go to the Montreal Grand Prix with my brother and my brother has a screen printer in his workshop. And so I had him screen print uh, all the grip of an eel covered in olive oil, Martin Brundle on a t-shirt. And I took that with me to Montreal and wore it. And it was even funnier because I wore it the day that it downpoured on qualifying day. And so I was like, oh, I should, z- I, people are going to blame me for this because of my slippery shirt. So I have to like cover it up with my rain jacket. But I, anytime he lets off one of those metaphors, it like makes the race for me. You know, I get texts all the way through Formula 2 commentary from him going, copyright, I said that in 2010. Co- copyright, I said that in 2014. Can't have that one. I, I don't realize it's obviously just, you know, you kind of like, you're like a sponge when you're young. Young, you kind of soak up the environment you're in. Yeah, and I and I must have just soaked some nonsense up. Well, <laughs> well, you're very well. You're very welcome and in amongst friends here. If you like soaking up nonsense, it's been very exciting to have grown up around the racetrack and around cars. It was very normal. It was very very normal. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. but was there a moment where you thought, 
oh, this is really fun. I think I might, I think I might do this. Yeah, but I, I think that moment was quite a long time after I did it. Mm. Um, you know, it seemed like the preordained path um, to 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 go racing and do that. And there was, you know, I wasn't going to object. You know, so it was it was the road laid in front of me, and it was what I wanted to do anyway. So I just went along that road. About the time, I would say it was really, I was really kind of a late maturer kind of mentally late uh, and I really took control of my own career early only in my early 20s really and at that point I kind of went oh this has worked out well but only for only at that point did I really kind of grab it and go this is really what I want to do before that I'd kind of been been following the road ahead if that makes sense Uh, as you know Greg I used to race carts quite highly averagely and don't like to mention it yeah didn't know that Uh, (laughs) me and Alex raced against each other at Wilton Mill in Northamptonshire. Do you remember racing against Christian Hugill? I, I remember when he walled me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. And an amazing use of a verb that doesn't really exist, walled. but I love it. To wall. To wall. He walled you. Alex had started further back than normal, because let's be quite frank about this. Alex was far better than me and would have normally been starting much further ahead than me. But Alex had tried to go around the outside and ran out of room. And because I didn't give him the room ended up in the wall and ended up in the gravel. Well, no, I'd like I'd like the man who was walled to tell the story, please. I only re- I remember it based on his anecdote. So, <laughs> so but we made we made it to the stewards together and apparently I was very nice. So I'm prepared to take that. I'm going to take that, put it in my bucket. <laughs> that glamour of being an F1 person and then a karting dad must have been quite the contrast for for you guys, Alex. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, he hated karting because he never did any karting. He went straight from what we're supposed to call grass track racing but was really banger racing through British touring cars by, you know, stealing a stealing a Celica off his dad's forecourt and hammering a roll cage into it. Toilet a Celica, big up. <laughs> straight into straight into Formula Three, then into Formula One. And so karting, everything was backwards, didn't know how to do it. We got out of it as soon as humanly possible. Um but he was always very sort of down to earth about it, both in kind of what we spent on it and also how we went about it. Well, this leads us nicely into into the motorsport ladder. Now, we've had as many questions for this week's episode as we've had when we get the likes of Lando Norris, Max Verstappen on. We have had so many questions for you, Alex, on the sort of motorsport ladder. And we mentioned earlier, you do your commentary trade in F2. So let's dig into this. Big question, Alex, to sum up concisely for us. How do you get on the motorsport ladder? Because it, it tends to start nowadays, doesn't it, with karting? Yeah, it starts with karting and and always the the big follow on question, the question people are really asking when they ask that question is how much does it cost me to become a Formula One driver? That's what that's what people that's what people really want to know. (laughs) And the question is everything from 20 grand and then you get picked up by someone else who pays for it all to 10 million quid because you've paid for it all yourself. The value of racing to get you from zero to Formula One, assuming you win everything, is about £10 million as it stands. What? That is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Look at Nick's face. <laughs> Nick, you just look genuinely flabbergasted. Yeah, that is a, a shocking, shocking amount. But does that mean the competitor has to pay that if they're a talented individual who can find somebody to pay that for them? No, hmm. it doesn't. So that's how much someone has to believe in you, believe in your talent if you're a talented person who will be funded, or indeed that's how much you have to have 
private funding available mm. if you can't find anybody to believe in your talent. The, the best way to start, I firmly believe these days is with an audience yeah without a huge amount of funding available to you and i'm going to throw a name some of you might know some of you might not know jimmy broadbent is a guy who you may or may not have known started with a youtube channel and has built a career based around a multi hundred thousand subscriber base now getting thrown in this and that for free i firmly believe that in 2023 from now the best way to start a motorsport career without funding it at all is with an audience. Wow. So essentially being a very talented up and coming driver, but being an influencer, yeah. having a TikTok gang or a, or a YouTube following. Wow, that's so interesting. And that's sort of, that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this sport, in motorsport in general, because we're following the likes of Chloe Grant, for example, from the F1 Academy. And we are watching her gather fans as it, as it progresses. And so you're saying that that is, I guess, a bit like a musician or a comedian. You need to have your gang that then doubles, triples, quadruples, joins up with other motorsport fans, and they and suddenly you become a you become a thing as well as so you've got to be a social media star and a brilliant driver. I think so because what are we actually doing? Like well, in the grand scheme of motorsport, we're marketing really. That's that's what's essentially funding it. Mm. Obviously, you're dealing with a business as a as a race car driver where essentially the viewer and the team are your kind of two customers and you're selling your time and ability to both. What I think we're seeing though is the proportion to which you're selling to the viewer increasing mm. and you're selling to the team decreasing as teams require funding and eyeballs become more valuable in general. I'd never thought about it that way, but it entirely makes sense, doesn't it? When you're trying to attract sponsorship, which is which is what these drivers need to attract sponsorship to get people to pay for the racing because I couldn't have afforded to race without sponsorship. And if I'd had, had a YouTube channel, it wasn't a thing at the time, but it makes perfect sense. That's exactly what I was going to say is that, Christian, you didn't grow up with £10 million knocking around your, your mum and dad. No. So I, obviously there will be limits and limitations and there will still be costs involved, but there is a move to this potentially being a democratization, uh, uh, getting a big career in, in, in motor racing. It, it potentially opens it up to more people, much like not necessarily being signed to a major record label opens up the chance for someone just to be a big TikTok music star and suddenly they're selling out venues. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the equivalent of, you know, a musician busking. I guess. Uh, not that I really know uh, about that yeah. part. But <laughs> yeah, what yeah. I do think, though, about uh, the concept of democratisation of that kind of thing is it has to be quite organic. Mm. If you just put the tools in place and then allow those with the gumption to grab the opportunity to do so, and I, I really think that's a, a good way and, and a good opportunity to, to, to do that. So, so interesting. Nick, did you ever have dreams of, of racing? Was that something that was in your in your brain when you were a kid? Not so much becoming a racing driver. I always had a fascination with cars. Uh, my dad was a big gearhead and I grew up going to car shows and around cars all the time. Um, but it never was really a thought in the back of my mind that, oh, I should you know, get started in this and, and uh, try to become a, a racing driver myself. Uh, it's more of a hobby for me, just going to the karting track with some friends now and again. Um, but also I don't think that, you know, my parents didn't have two pennies to rub together, let alone $10 million. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the finances, uh, I would have had to become really good at YouTube really quick if it was ever going to be a possibility. But if you were sort of 
15 now, Alex, or, or even younger, would, would, is, is that what you would do if you were, if you were starting out? Yeah, I think so. I mean, to, to put myself in my own shoes of that age, we had a bit of money to get going, but then not enough to sort of go all the way. The challenge of it is you've really got to be doing things way before you're supposed to be thinking about this sort of stuff. And it's almost like whoever grows up the fastest and recognises that they are already doing their career and they're nine. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's, that's the nature of it. Um, so I think I would, but 15 is way too late. People are driving Formula One cars by 60. Yes, of course, Max famously, yeah. Yeah, so yeah correct but you know i can i can see it playing out now in the motorsport yeah. world so they're on it they're absolutely on it right you've started in karting you've gone up the motorsport ladder and people tend to go from karting into some form of cars and then once you've got into cars alex how do you sort of make it into what is f3 and then f Two. How do you get sort of close to F1? So you've got to pay your way, basically. So you need to already be in an academy by then. But there are really very few academies that actually fully fund drivers' seasons, seats and progress. So you've got to find either pay for or find somebody to pay for the next stage, which becomes incrementally easier the better you do. So let's say you're a really good Formula 4 driver as Oscar Piastri was. I think he drove for Arden uh, as he made his way through. The news travels fast if there's somebody mm. capable of being at Formula One level. And all of a sudden, what will happen for those guys is the backing will increase and the numbers required will shrink because they know that they can use your performance to sell their next season of cars. Right. So money matters, but talent also matters. You need both. And that's how the next progression comes. So you find yourself a seat in Formula 3, you beat the other 29 uh, drivers, then you find yourself a seat in Formula 2 with this incremental ladder of talent pull going like a prism up towards the, the top, the highest level, and also amount of backing you need to find ever increasing in its belief of you from your sponsor's backers or your own ability to fund it. Wow. It's so, so complicated and so many things need to go in your favour, don't they? But it, it actually, listening to you talking, it renders everyone who says, oh, well, he just paid, he's rich and that's why he's successful. It renders, that, that comment is far too facile. There's, there's so much nuance to it, but you also do need to be incredibly talented and have the mindset and have the nerve to keep going. And the chances of you becoming an F1 driver are so slim, aren't they? <laughs> what you're also doing is giving away probably the opportunity for education, the opportunity cost of doing anything else. And the problem with that comment of, oh, you just buy your way through, is that those who are going to just buy their way through don't need people to care or not to care. They're going to buy it anyway. The only person that you're hurting with that comment, really, are your GT3 driver who's going to walk into a room and try and pitch a sponsor to get themselves in a GT3 car for yet another year to try and make something happen in their sports car career. And that person is going to meet a business owner who's going to look them in the eye and go, hold on a minute, is your sport not just for rich playboys? Why are you asking me for money? 
what what benefit could this possibly offer me? So you're not stamping on the very top level. You're stamping on the little guy with that comment, really. The ultimate example of that, of what you were saying in terms of being spotted early, at an early age, was, was Lewis Hamilton, who the ex-boss of the McLaren team, a man called Ron Dennis, who older F1 fans will know, who newer F1 fans might not. You know, Ron spotted Lewis's talent at an early age and Lewis didn't have money at first. And Ron said to Lewis, you know, well, Lewis bowled up to Ron and said, I want to race for McLaren. You know, Lewis was backed by Ron Dennis and the sort of McLaren group throughout his motor racing career. And that's what helped him climb the ladder of what is now Formula 3. I mean, Lewis didn't race what is now Formula 2. He went straight into Formula 1. But that ladder is is sort of what you're aiming for, isn't it, Alex? Going sort of through the cars, into Formula 3, into Formula 2, and then into Formula 1. Yeah, and, and it's very easy to get unbacked as well. Yeah. You know, what what we forget is those drivers have got to, you know, we've got six, six Red Bull-backed drivers in Formula 2 this year. These drivers come up against... Uh, opposition uh, all the way through. Yeah, I've uh, sat outside of an Apple store for a new iPhone, but never outside of a racing (laughs) HQ for funding. Maybe I should have allotted my time a little bit differently growing up. I don't know. So Alex, I was listening to a a podcast called Fast and the Curious, and they were interviewing one Oscar Piastri. uh, And he happened to mention in passing that he like his only goal was to win F2 so that he couldn't compete in in F2 again. And that was the first time it ever dawned on me that, is that a rule? Like if you win the F2 championship, then you cannot race in that series again? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it literally is written into the sporting regs. And you also, if you've been a Formula One driver, can't then drop back into F2. It rolls into a really interesting point where I've seen major championship victories finish driver's careers where you see a driver win a championship not manage to secure the funding for the next level be unable to stay at the same level because they've won the championship and it can only get worse from here and it actually finishes them off on the spot one of the big examples of that is nick de Vries, who won f2 couldn't get into f1 won formula e couldn't get into f1 had to wait around the fringes for a long time and he'd sort of won everything he could in terms of formula e and formula 2 had to wait so long for his f1 chance got it when he filled in for alex albon last season impressed has got a drive this year and brutally it lasted only six months so that that's such a factor and just to explain brief, briefly how formula 2 works 22 drivers 11 teams all the same chassis all the same engine suppliers So therefore, it is a proper test of a driver's skill and talent. And to move on to our listeners' questions for you, Alex, Chloe asks, who's the most exciting driver to commentate on this season? I love watching Oliver Behrman. I love love the way he goes about it. To start the year, so win it or bin it. He's so young to be in Formula 2, but so quick as well. Um, and he's the name that comes off the the team boss's lips when you talk about ex, uh, exciting drivers who are not necessarily in the hunt for the championship this year. You know, obviously, you've got Vesti and Paul Cher and Iwasa with an outside chance of the championship. But Oli Behrman is just quick like mad. There's a continuing saying in motorsport. It's really easy to make the wild ones neater. It's very hard to make the slow ones fast. And I think Oli Behrman's got that oomph that'll that'll take him somewhere. That's a really interesting shout because that's the name I've seen or read about most. So it's as as your earlier point suggested news travels fast. People just keep saying 
how about Ollie Behrman? How about Oscar Piastri? And like those names just suddenly they seep out into the public consciousness. A bit like in the F1 Academy, Marta Garcia just seems to be that's like that's the name you sort of you hear about. Yes, she wins lots of races, but that's kind of the name that people go, oh yeah, Marta's pretty good. So Ollie Behrman, how old is he? Can I just check? Eighteen, Ollie Behrman. Uh, yeah, driver's a little driver's a little bit older than him. I know he's one of the younger drivers in the series, rookie in the series, Ferrari Junior. It's just more the way he goes about it in the car. Greg mentioned Marta Garcia in F1 Academy. You mentioned Theo Pocher, who's leading the F2 championships. Uh, James has asked, do the drivers have to approach or pitch themselves to F1 teams or do teams have talent scouts looking out for the best drivers in the lower series? So they will, will they be looking at your championship leaders like your Garcia, like your Pochers, or will they be looking at ones that have just got sheer flair like Ali Behrman, who you mentioned? How are they going to get themselves from impressing in something like F2 to F1? So it's quite complex, and there are a lot of managers involved, a fair few sort of talent representatives that operate around that level. That most of those drivers will have Mr. 10%, who is, you know, get it, getting in there, trying to get the job done for them. What you've got is a combination between uh, sometimes a bit of funding to get yourself in the back end of Formula One, drivers finding millions of to get themselves in a Formula One car, or being the right Tetris block that fits, or, or playing just being mighty fast, think Oscar Piastri. So... There are plenty of ways to skin a cat on that one. Most of the drivers are a combination of those elements. So funding, being the right Tetris block and being good enough to drive the car. Because Oscar, of course, won Formula 3 and Formula 2, so really put himself in the sort of you know public eye by, as you say, just being bloody quick. Yeah, and, and those drivers, we need those drivers because we need it to be clear that you can still do that. Delivers in three, delivers in two, finds himself in Formula One after five or six or ten races, delivers in Formula One and shows you, you know what, you can actually do this stuff behind the wheel. What was your favourite series to race in, Alex? I love IMSA, which is the American sports car championship. So think American endurance racing. I love racing in America, first and foremostly. Just a different culture of racing, a barbecue culture of racing. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, I can see Nick nodding furiously here. His his eyes lit up there. So what do you know about IMSA? So I don't know specifically anything about IMSA, but I do know that the American racing motorsport culture is is different and exactly what Alex described. Like barbecue racing culture could not be a better way to describe motorsport in the US. While we're talking about American racing, Nick, you're an IndyCar fan, right? And an IndyCar is sort of like the the biggest motor racing series in America. Like imagine Formula One, but just covering America. And I mean, Nick, you've got some of your favorite drivers in that category, right? Who are they? Yeah, so I do follow IndyCar. Um, I'm a diehard F1 fan and I'm an IndyCar fan around the edges, I would say. Um, but it is fun to watch, especially in the you know three-week period in the summer when there's no F1 happening. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, I love seeing the likes of Alex Pillow and Pato Award, like two really standout names in the series. Um, they, they perform really great. And also some F1 drivers uh, make their way to IndyCar if their F1 career ends, but they're, you know, still excited about motor racing. So like Roman Grosjean is racing IndyCar. Marcus Ericsson is racing in IndyCar now. So And Alex in particular, Alex Pillow, is one of those drivers who keeps being talked about for a potential F1 seat. It feels to me, Alex, I don't know if it feels the same to you, that as IndyCar grows in popularity and certainly it being on Sky in this country, like F2 is on Sky, is helping it get more of a following in the UK. 
it feels like we're starting to hear a bit more talk around F1 and IndyCar as a link. And maybe, as I say, Alex below being linked with an Alpha Tauri drive in some places. IndyCar is awesome. It's, I call it protein shake racing. <laughs> you know, they're going around street circuits and they're absolutely dragging the things. It's how racing should be. And and definitely, you know, that, that I think, yeah, Polo is that driver, isn't he? He's been hovering around McLaren for ages. It's, it's a really difficult one because it's such different racing. We, Formula One really creates its own environment. It's such a little bubble. That crossover is so hard. And what that doesn't mean is drivers are more or less talented either side of the pond i think it's just so super different i would like to see that transition from indycar i don't you know if you can move from formula two to formula one you know there is no reason why you can't move across from from indycar to formula one i'd like to see that i'd like to see a lot more of it going on and i i do think that the super license structure the way that points are delivered to uh, drivers to prepare them for a super license, which is a license you need to race in Formula One, should be tweaked to to promote that a little more. And two of our listeners have, have asked questions about that in particular. Hello to Hudson and to Maddie, who both asked how super licenses work. It's something that F1 drivers have to have to race in Formula One. Uh, Alex, what is it and how would someone like Ollie Behrman, who we mentioned in F2, or an IndyCar driver, how do they get super license points? Because this also came up last season with Logan Sargent, didn't it? There was doubts as to whether he would have enough super license points to race in F1. Alex, how does all that work? So it's it's based around your championship finishing positions over the previous three years. Mm. Um, and the higher you finish in a higher level championship, the more points you get. The point of discussion with it or the point of consideration with it, with it are how do you weight the various championships in their intensity, in their difficulty. And previously, certain championships have been weighted more highly than other championships in their delivery of super license points to, to, to offer a super license for Formula One. Uh, there's been much discussion with regards to the comparison between IndyCar and other series as to whether IndyCar should be biased more heavily in allowing drivers to uh, to achieve those points. Basically, give more points for IndyCar is, 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 a, is a discussion. <laughs> in the acknowledgement that it is, you know, difficult and, and appropriately prepares a driver for Formula yeah. 1. Yeah. It's so fascinating talking to you, Alex, and so many things are whirring around my head. I mean, one of the reasons the Fast and the Curious started is because we are curious about uh, the, about motorsport. But if you look at, if, F, F, if F1 is the surface, you are scratching beneath it. It would be disingenuous to say that every single person who starts racing a kart or a whatever wants to become an F1 driver because, as we're finding, there are many different series you can be great in, have a great career in, uh, not only um, you know in the cars and but in the garages. But that's I think that's probably a myth, isn't it? That that needs to be busted. That everyone who goes, I'm going to be a racing driver, they don't necessarily want to be a Formula One driver because you could have an amazing, brilliant career in, in IndyCar or whatever. I know guys that only drive pre-war Bentley. <laughs> and they that'd make... be me. No, that'd I'd be love Greg, that. yeah. I'd... <laughs> I'd like to drive basically old BMWs. Yeah. That's what I want to do. There's a there's a there's a guy who makes a living out of being the best guy in a Fraser Nash pre-war Formula One car. Uh, it's called Patrick Blakeney. He's unbelievable in it. You know what I mean? It's a big wide world of motorsport. Yeah. And I, I apologise on behalf of all of us for being so disgustingly opaque, because we are, 
and we're not very, we're not very good at outreach and explaining what we do. We love assumed knowledge. We love to hide behind our ter- our glossary of terms, which only certain people understand and pretend it's really complicated and difficult when it's not. <laughs> There's a big wide world of motorsport out there, and and there are loads of things to go and race. Hey, don't apologise. That's why this podcast exists, Alex. And people like me earn money from explaining it all. So don't you don't don't you dare apologise <laughs> for that. It's given me a career. We've taken up a lot of your guys' time. So, but just briefly before we before we end this week's adventure on the Fast and the Curious. F2 obviously leads to F1. Now, next year, uh, Alex, you obviously follow F1 incredibly closely. You do a lot of work with F1 TV and and, uh, F1's podcast as well. We're not expecting too many driver changes next year, are we? Because, I mean, you you look at Alpine, Ferrari, McLaren, Red Bull, in theory, have all got their drivers contracted to next year. So we're talking about F2 a lot today, Alex. Could we see any of the F2 class of, 2023 in F1 in 2024. I think Teo's got a good chance because of his connection in uh, with Fred Vasseur. And now, of course, team principal of Ferrari. Now, of course, team principal of Ferrari, yeah. That connection is there. They've supported him throughout his career. So there's that There's that grab handle uh, for Teo. But as you say, th- there are so many drivers con- contracted on through to 2024. So I, I do think we're going to see a bit of a stabilisation and the escalator with a, a-, a no-through road at the top uh, somewhat continues for the young drivers, unfortunately. Mm. Can I ask you a basic question before we go? This is really basic. We should have an alarm for this. I'm prepared. <laughs> Do you think that Formula One would be better if, much like F2, all the cars were the same? No. Is the right answer. I don't. Okay. The reason for that is that I think it would struggle for funding big time. When high-performance powertrains by Mercedes cannot say we made the most efficient engine, wasn't it brilliant? That's why we won won all of those Grand Prix. They are going to withdraw that funding. The brilliant showcase that is Formula One, unfortunately, requires finance. We've seen how much trouble they've had sticking to what, to the normal human appears an utterly insane cost cap of, you know, over $100 million. So there just wouldn't be the money, mate, if if they had to conform to that. Nick, as a fan, do you agree with me on this? Because I get asked this as a fan all the time. And it's like, F1 is a team sport. It would take away so much of what I love about F1 that makes it the greatest motorsport series in the world if they were all the same. Do you agree? Do you agree with me, Nick, as a fan of F1? Yeah, absolutely. I agree mostly because when you think about it, it as like one of, if not the most exclusive sports in the world. There are 20 people doing this, right, per year. And so, and and also if you're an F1 fan, you know the differences between drivers are down to milliseconds, like almost invisible to the human eye, how close these uh, these drivers are to one another. And so the fact that they're all operating on somewhat the same level we cannot take away from you know the performances of Hamilton Verstappen Leclerc at the top of the grid but the fact that they're all so close that gives the teams also so much more motivation to say well we know our driver can do as well as whoever's running at the top if we just make enough of an improvement to our car to give them that extra edge that extra performance so it almost feels as if allowing the teams to modify and make those changes to their car 
it like keeps them biting at the heels of the people ahead of them, right? Like yes. you're not going to know who's going to win the series after the first three races because the car is going to change throughout the year, right? Versus at the beginning of the year, if the car stayed the same the whole time and they were all exactly identical, you're going to know who's going to win all the time because it's just going to be the driver who's quickest. Yeah. For me, it's always been what I love about F1 is getting behind the teams and you get storylines like McLaren this year storming through the the field with upgrades. I think it adds so much to the sport. So, uh, I, Greg, I know you asked Alex that one and I jumped in, but I'm really passionate about that one, as you can probably tell. Yeah, well, I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> I'm not taking away the team sponsorships, by the way, just no. to let you know. It's, it, it, it's safe, so you can you can stop Don't. crying. <laughs> crying. <laughs> A really great point from Nick about it being the most elite sport in the world with 20 people. I mean, we know that, but just because remind ourselves that a very small amount of people get to do it. We will wrap up the episode here. Um, Alex, it's been so fascinating and so insightful having you on. We've loved it. I hope you've enjoyed being on The Fast and the Curious. And where can we... Um, where can we hear you next or see you next? Um, I am going to be on F1 TV and Sky Sports F1 doing two and three. Uh, and yeah, kicking about on some other Formula One broadcasts, which I can't reveal yet. Oh, Ooh, I know. Exactly. Okay. okay. And also just um, a, a car question. How often do you race? How often do you drive fast now? Much, much. I drive a lot of historic cars now. I do a lot of the Nürburgring now. Did the Nürburgring 24 hours this year. Wonderful. So I spend a fair amount of time pounding around the Nordschleife. So you can see me in the NLS series, which is the series that go around the Nürburgring, Nürburgring 24 hours. And Goodwood Revival and silly, silly nuts, classic car events like that. I, um, I went to the Nürburgring about seven or eight years ago and... I couldn't believe what it was like. Um, <laughs> almost like apocalyptically brilliantly fun racing weekend of camping and debauchery. You're camping around the corners of the circuit and it's and it's in beautiful forest land and there's just little parties that pop up and people build sort of structures in the trees to get a good vantage point of the circuit. It, it's like racing through Mad Max Fury Road with the lights turned off. Right. There you go. Some, summed up like a perfect like a Brundle would do. <laughs> it's a great thing. And Nick, where can we see you and, and hear you? Where where will we likely to spot Nick in the wild? Uh, well, I'm excited to be heading to Europe uh, in September. I'm on a bit of an F1 fan. Uh, how many things can I see that aren't a Grand Prix <laughs> tour? Um, so follow along on social media if you're curious to to see what kind of museums and tracks I can find myself at over the course of two weeks. Amazing. Nick, it is always a pleasure having you on the podcast. You are one of our premier reserve drivers. Thank you. As Greg says, Alex, such insight from you. I've absolutely loved it. And ho as I said, we got so many questions about the motorsport ladder and into F2. So hopefully we've done them justice. But if you've got any more, of course, we'll be back next week. We can always pick them up. Uh, you can email us your questions, fastandcurious at acast.com. We are on TikTok and Instagram, fastcuriouspod. And next week... Formula One is back. Next Sunday is the Dutch Grand Prix. So next week, providing Betty's finished doing her cricket, she'll be back. Me and Greg will be back. And we'll look ahead to the Dutch Grand Prix and the second half of next season. Send us your questions about the second half of the F1 seasons or predictions. And we'll talk about it next week. I've had a lovely time. I don't know if you have, Greg. It's been so good. I'm really pleased that I made it back. I raced back in time for it. Nick and Alex, it's been a pleasure. And thank you, as always, Christian. Thank you, Greg. And I look forward to hearing what your punishment will be for breaking your FIA uh, shutdown period rules. We'll find out. Yeah, so it's kind of an Ollie Behrman kind of move. You know, you can uh, 
What was the quote? You 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 can you can't f- speed up a slow driver, but you can refine a I don't know. What, uh, right, bye. Uh, bye then. <laughs> <laughs> bye then. <laughs>